When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've heard tells about the Santa Rita Number One, the oil well that started the first boom in West Texas. The site itself is a kind of mecca in the Permian Basin. One recent afternoon, I decided to see it for myself. The Santa Rita stood alone in a field of mesquite trees and yellowed grass. There was a metal derrick and a tin shack next to it. A barbed wire fence surrounded the rig. But the gate was unlocked, so I slipped inside. The wind rattled the shack. Part of the ceiling had caved in, and the huge belts that once powered the rig's engine had snapped and rotted in the sun. I stood on the rig floor and thought about the roughnecks who drilled this well almost a century ago. It must have seemed mad to be drilling for oil in the middle of nowhere. They had no idea that the discovery they were about to make would change the world. I'm Christian Wallace. From Texas Monthly and Imperative Entertainment, this is Boomtown podcast about the historic old boom that's playing out in the Permian Basin. A boom so big, it's reshaping our economy, our climate, and our geopolitics. Today, we're going to step back in time. To truly understand what's happening in the Permian right now, you first have to know how we got here. How the Permian Basin went from being sparsely populated cow country to one of the most influential regions in the world. This is episode two, The Rise of the Permian. When people think about Texas, they tend to think of cowboys. When I travel outside of the Southwest, I'm often asked if I rode a horse to school. For the record, I rode a bike. This enduring stereotype springs from a relatively brief period of time, the three or so decades following the Civil War. This was when cowboys drove millions of cattle out of Texas to railroad hubs like Dodge City, Kansas. Think of Augustus McRae and Woodrow McCall out on the trail in Lonesome Dove. But if the cowboy defined Texas in the late 1800s, it was oil and the wildcatter that defined the state's next 50 years. And it all started with the most famous strike of them all, Spindletop. The world changed at Spindletop, which was this big mound out on the swamp flats below Beaumont. That's writer Brian Burrow, the author of six books, including The Big Rich, The Rise and Fall of the Greatest Texas Oil Fortunes. You know, kids there since the Civil War had seen things bubbling and it smelled sulfurous. Um, and there, there was this one-armed guy, Patio Higgins, Bud Higgins, and he thought... Well, there's at least a shot there that there might be some oil. So he brings in some water well drillers from Corsicana. 
and they, uh, you know, they sink a hole in this big uh, mound, which we would call today a salt dome, and they hit a gusher, a classic Hollywood, you know, gusher out of control, you know, raining down bl- black oil on everybody, getting everybody dirty. Brian came to Texas Monthly's studio in Austin to talk to us about the history of Texas oil. And just to be clear, the American oil industry didn't actually begin in Texas. In 1859, four decades before Spindletop, a Yankee named Colonel Edwin Drake was the first to drill a successful oil well in Pennsylvania. Yeah, there had been uh, oil production in western Pennsylvania going back to Civil War times. And I think there were a couple of wells in, in, in Kansas. But, you know, it was, we were still learning how to use it and what it was for. There was no sense, there was no scramble to find oil. It was guys like Bud Higgins saying, oh, let's see if we can find oil. And every now and then somebody found something small. He was the first one to find something big. Patio Bud Higgins was a troublemaker in his youth, raising hell in the small town of Beaumont, a place where the East Texas piney woods meets the swampy Gulf Coast. At 17, his antics led to a gunfight with a sheriff's deputy. Higgins caught a bullet in the left arm and the limb had to be amputated. Higgins eventually straightened out. He taught himself geology and studied the region's subterranean salt domes, the tops of which form hills around Beaumont. He spent a decade trying to coax oil from what locals called the Big Hill. After a decade of unsuccessful drilling, Higgins published a newspaper ad hoping to attract new investors. The ad caught the attention of a man named Anthony Lucas. The Austrian-born engineer believed that Higgins was onto something. Lucas raised enough capital to begin a new drilling operation. That was in October of 1900. And sure enough, the well came roaring in on January 10th, 1901. A plume of crude oil shot over 100 feet in the air raining down over the wooden derrick and coating nearby houses. It took nine days to get the Lucas geyser under control. It looked like snow, and it had uh, discolored all the houses in town and the silverware and the silver in your pocket. Word quickly spread about the strike at the Big Hill, which was rechristened Spindletop. Beaumont became the state's first oil boomtown. Over the next three months, the population tripled from 10 to 30,000. Just one year later, there were 285 wooden derricks surrounding Spindletop Hill, and more than 500 companies vying for a piece of the big black pie underneath it. The single first well uh, uh, produced more oil than had been produced in the United States like the previous 10 years. It was just the explosion, you know, was such a metaphor. For, for what was going to happen. In 1900, a year before Spindletop, there were only 8,000 cars driving throughout the entire United States. Just 20 years later, there were 10.5 million. Yes, Spindletop and Texas oil really was one of the main propellants behind the auto boom. So it, it impacted everything from navies to cars, but, you know, it transformed the way America did business, the way we got around. I mean, an awful lot of horses were out of work there in those first 10 years. 
World War I created an even greater need for the suddenly abundant black gold flowing out of Texas and other American oil fields. After the war ended in 1918, a British lord famously bragged that the Allies had floated to victory on a wave of oil. And with the economic explosion that followed the war, the demand for oil only increased. At the time, oil field geology was still a crude practice. Many of the early wildcatters simply relied on their nose, sniffing around salt domes for the smell of sulfur, just like Higgins had. Others drilled based on nothing more than a hunch. Some oil seekers turned to the spiritual realm for help, and others tried to divine new wells with dousing rods. In other words, a lot of early wildcatting was little more than a crapshoot. And, and keep in mind, this was at a time where we had no real idea what was down there or, or how it got around. I remember Hugh Cullen, who was the richest man in, in Houston for years, one of the first great wildcatters. You know, he thought that oil moved in rivers down, you know, below. We, we had no idea of the geology. They were just beginning to use geophysical stuff. He would walk around and find places in the earth that he just felt like, you know, usually low, low places. He just felt in his bones that there might be oil there, and son of a gun, the guy was pretty good at it. Eventually, the great spindle top played out. There were simply too many holes poked in the ground, too many straws sucking from the same milkshake. If Texas was going to continue to be a major player in the oil game, it would have to find new reserves. Up until this point, oil had been found in swampy, hilly areas like East Texas and Western Pennsylvania. So the West Texas desert seemed like the last place you'd find another spindle top. So when people looked here, it sure doesn't look like Western Pennsylvania, like there are no trees and not much water, and it doesn't have hills, it's mostly flat. So if you're looking for oil in places where it looks like you found it before, this is not attractive. Dr. Diana Hinton is a historian of the petroleum industry. She's lived in Midland, the financial capital of the Permian Basin, for 46 years and has published six books on the industry. We spent a morning talking at her home. As far as like towns and roads and that type of thing, there's very little at that time. Most roads weren't paved, um, even major arteries. This was ranch country. The Permian Basin was, in the 1920s, mostly a blank slate, a pancake-flat sea of scrub brush and mesquite. There were few towns and few people. And towns were spaced to some extent in terms of how to get cattle efficiently to the railroad, which was why about every 25, 30 miles along the railroad, there'd be a town. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Permian Basin was still, in many ways, the land of Lonesome Dove. But there were a few who looked out at the empty pastures of West Texas and saw the potential in its arid red dirt. In 1919, Frank Pickerel was discharged from the Army and traveled to Fort Worth. At the time, Fort Worth was the western hub for the nascent Texas oil industry, a place where aspiring oil promoters went to make deals. He just so happened to run into an old army buddy who'd recently assembled the rights to drill on 430,000 acres of land surrounding Big Lake, a speck of a town roughly halfway between El Paso and Dallas, smack dab in the middle of nowhere. The land in Reagan County, where Big Lake is located, was dirt cheap, just 10 cents an acre. In fact, the land in this area of West Texas was deemed so worthless that in 1876, the state legislature gave two million acres to the University of Texas for free. Pickerel and his partner, an El Paso businessman named Heyman Krupp, acquired the drilling rights, and Pickerel traveled to New York hoping to round up some investors. At one point, he even approached a group of Roman Catholic nuns. The sisters pulled their money and took a leap of faith on the harebrained scheme. It took nearly two years, but by the end of 1920, Pickerel and Krupp managed to raise over $100,000. Now they had to actually do something with the land, and they had to do it fast. Their drilling permit had an expiration date, and if they didn't start drilling before that permit expired, all their efforts would be for naught. Ignoring the advice of his geologist, Pickerel settled on a drilling location about a dozen miles west of Big Lake. His choice was more of convenience than fate. It was only 174 feet from the rail line. He purchased some used drilling equipment, shipped it to the location, and on the afternoon of January 8, 1921, just hours before the permit expired, the crew managed to spud in on the rig's water well. Needing legal proof that they'd made the midnight deadline, Pickerel hailed a passing car and persuaded one of the passengers to sign an affidavit saying he had witnessed the event. The deal was saved. Pickerel and Krupp now had another three years to find some oil. But first, they had to find a driller. Pickerel was scouting East Texas boomtowns when he met a hard-nosed oil patch veteran named Carl Cromwell. Cromwell, yeah, who had a little problem with alcohol. Um, and that's well known, so nobody can sue me for saying that about a dead man. For 15 bucks a day, Cromwell agreed to move his wife and small daughter into one of the two shotgun houses that had been built near the rig. The ramshackle lodgings and the rig were the only man-made structures as far as the eye could see. Progress proved slow. They discovered that they were going to have to drill a lot deeper than they might have originally thought. It had to go down almost to 4,000 feet. And you're drilling with a cable tool rig. Essentially, you're dropping a heavy pointed weight on rock to shatter it. And then you're bringing up the, the rock shatters, the, the rock chips. You know, this is how you're, you're making hole. It's a slow procedure. 
The old rig broke down often, and it could take days to ship in replacement parts by rail. Sometimes the crew went weeks without a paycheck. It was at one of these low points that Pickerel climbed the rig's derrick with a sealed envelope, a gift from the nuns who had invested in the project. Inside were a handful of dried rose petals. Here's Frank Pickerel himself. Two of these women handed me a sealed envelope and told me that the envelope contained a red rose that had been blessed by the priest in the name of the saint. The women asked me to take the rose back to Texon with me, to climb to the top of the dairy, and to scatter the rose petals, which by then were dried, over the rig, and to say, quote, I hereby christen thee Santa Rita, unquote. I faithfully carried out these instructions. Pickerel dedicated the well the Santa Rita number one. After several months of tough drilling, Cromwell got a lucky break. An experienced roughneck named D. Lachlan happened to be traveling through the area and was surprised to see an oil rig running. Cromwell hired him on the spot. Lachlan's wife, Nora, joined her husband and the Cromwells at the lonely drilling site. One afternoon, some uh, people passed and camped just up the other side of the rig. And... Uh, Toward night, while we walk, walked up there, you just get hungry to talk to people. And uh, while we were there, while the lady asked me, said, have you lived in West Texas all your life? And I said, uh, yes. And she said, well, you just don't know any better, do you? And little we knew the value of that land that we were standing on. They drilled for nearly two years without results. But everything changed on May 28, 1923. We went to bed that night just like we always do. We got up and made coffee. I think that's as far as we got. We didn't get a breakfast that day because all it was is the whole world woke loose. Carl ran out of his house and, and hollered real loud, and we ran out. And there was that bailer going to the top of that 86-foot derrick and hit the crown block and fell down to one side. And after that was just a cloud of oil came and began to spatter over everything. The houses and the white-legged chickens weren't quiet anymore. And the old milk had just jumped the fence and took off in that 75 section. And our garden was a sight. People from as far away as Fort Worth came to see the well pulse and spew oil all over the derrick, which it did, for an entire month until Cromwell's crew managed to control the flow. The well quickly filled two large tanks with crude. When those filled, they let the oil run into their slush pit until that too was overflowing. Soon, the Big Lake field was one of several new oil fields sprouting and thriving throughout West Texas. The Permian Basin had been born. Hadn't it always been the way that we find oil in some of the most atrocious climates. I'm not going to say there's anything atrocious about Midland and Odessa, but let's just say that, that the climate and the ground is not a place that people are just dying to go build their vacation homes, you know? People find oil all over Texas, and they don't want to live, the, nobody wants to live in the places that they find it. While I actually find much of the Permian Basin quite beautiful, I get Brian's sentiment 
The oil-producing parts of West Texas are an acquired taste. But despite its atrocious climate, once the Santa Rita came in, the boom was on, and soon wildcatters and boomers were rushing into the Permian. So now you're in a position by 1927 of knowing that, okay, the Permian Basin, even though it doesn't look like other places that have oil, even though it's a real headache getting your stuff in and out to drill wells, even though there's no place for your workers or your company employees to live, you're going to have to develop that, um, but it has a lot of oil. And so that's when the first Permian Basin boom takes off. Midland, with its hotels and banks, was probably the nicest of West Texas boomtowns. But most of the small towns were closer to glorified working campgrounds, where the living conditions were primitive. The 20s and the 30s were the great time for the classic uh, Texas oil boomtown. The classic one I'm thinking of is Wink, way out where, where I always think of Wink as the place where Roy Orbison was born. Uh, you know, towns that sprung up in the middle of a pasture in like a month. And you know, initially it's tents, and then it's tents and shacks. And then it's tents and shacks and hookers and bars. And, you know, everybody works their rears off all day long. And when they come home, young white men being what they are, especially in the 20s, they want entertainment. And so you, they were loud. They were dangerous. Uh, there was a lot of gambling and a lot of drinking and a lot of shooting guns in the air. You know, Texas boomtowns, American oil boomtowns were not kind of a place for, for the, the plight and the manner, they were rough. In terms of fun, not only could, were there places where you could get booze, but nearly all of those places also had a place where you could gamble. And then there were ladies whose occupation involved lying down a lot, and they would operate out of these places where people were having fun. You could also get a fight at the end of the day if you wanted one. Now, point to make here is that a lot of the people in a town like Wink who are using what I've been describing are single. They don't have families. They're young guys. They'll move with the boom because they can get a job without asking questions. And when the action slows down and the wages begin to taper off, they'll move to the next boom. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As America entered the Second World War, the production of oil became a matter of national security. In fact, some oil workers were exempted from the draft to ensure there was enough crude to power the Allied forces. Well, Texas oil was massively important to the Allied effort. Uh, I remember the very first challenge was how to get it out of Texas, uh, because typically it was uh, oil back then was moved by ship. And unfortunately, with Nazi submarines in the Gulf of Mexico and along Florida, an awful lot of the Texas oil that was, should be going 
to Texas ended up washing up on the beaches in Florida. The Roosevelt administration built the first ever uh, uh, pipelines the, called the Big Inch and the Little Inch from Texas um, all the way up to uh, Pennsylvania. And once we figured out how to get Texas oil up to the East Coast, you know, it became the great driver of jet fuel, of uh, all manner of airline fuels, uh, tanks, uh, everything. I mean, the Nazis and the Japanese were always hard pressed for oil. That was the reason that, you know, Hitler went so hard for Romania. And, and one of the main reasons he invaded Russia was to get Russian oil uh, from the Caucasus. Texas oil was widely credited for helping secure the Allied victory. And afterward, the state's influence only grew. Wow. I mean, the thing where ultimately Texas uh, really changed the way America lived was with Texas natural gas um, after World War II, when we got the first pipelines uh, built up to the northeast and gas from the Permian, uh, gas from either, even further west Texas, suddenly lit up most of Brooklyn, uh, you know, all of New York, all of Broadway. That was all Texas natural gas. After the war... America was able to turn its gaze inward. In the period of economic growth that followed, another Texas phenomenon was born, one that would come to live alongside the cowboy in American imagination, the swaggering Texas wildcatter. It really wasn't until America kind of woke up in 1946 and 1947 and began taking stock of 15 years of kind of uh, economic and, and social change that had not been widely covered, that people began to understand, Jesus Christ, there's a lot of wealthy people in Texas. Where do these guys come from? Rich Texas oil men weren't a new thing, but they were new to the rest of the country. There was this famous uh, magazine cover, Life magazine, uh, early 1950, I want to say, in which they put H.L. Hunt on the cover. They, they ambushed him on the, on the streets of downtown. Uh, Dallas, and, and the big headline, uh, you know, is on the cover was, is this the richest man in America? And on the East Coast and the North, everybody was like, what? There's, who are these people? The national press became infatuated with these staggeringly rich, colorful characters. One of the most famous wildcatters was a guy known as Silver Dollar Jim West. This roly-poly guy in Texas, in Houston, who would walk around literally throwing silver dollars in the air and, and, and chuckling as people would scramble for them. In, in Houston, especially, Dallas was always a little bit better behaved. Oilmen almost competed to be the most outrageous, you know? This was the era where people bought tigers for their backyard and, you know, as a stunt would put uh, like a steamboat in your swimming pool, you know, stuff like this. From 1950 into the late 50s was really the high watermark for press attention. And it really created this whole idea of kind of uh, the loud nouveau riche Texas oil man. The mythos surrounding the Texas wildcatter has persisted to this day. Perhaps the most famous oil man of all time hails from the 80s and wasn't even a real person. Without a doubt, the most influential oil man uh, uh, broadcasting this larger-than-life persona to the rest of the world was J.R. Ewing of TV's Dallas. And if you weren't alive in the 70s, you just may not remember, Dallas and J.R. Ewing were the top things on TV, the number one thing on TV. Uh, they ran an episode once where he got shot, and it was the most-watched episode in, in television history anywhere in the world. But while the fictional antics of J.R. Ewing captivated the viewing public, 
real-life Texas oil men found out their money could influence a different audience. Washington, D.C. Texas oil money does not immediately move into the political sphere. It needs to be discovered. And it was famously discovered by a young, unknown Texas congressman named Lyndon Johnson in the 1938-1939 period uh, where he was tasked with raising some money. And he said, well, I've met some of these rich oil men. And, of course, in Washington, they were like, what, rich oil men in Texas? Well, okay, pal. And, like, let's say that was on a Friday afternoon. And by Monday morning, he's got, like, five checks for $5,000 each. And that's serious money back in the day. And suddenly, everybody was like, whoa, there's money down in Texas. More importantly, the oil men down in Texas went, whoa, our money actually could do something and mean something in Washington. And that oil money could go a long way toward advancing one's own political agenda, whatever it might be. Uh, but in the state, oil millionaires, the, the Jim Wests, the Hugh Collins, were beginning in the 1930s, beginning to buy newspapers and radio stations uh, to broadcast their kind of politics. And their kind of politics, with rare exception, is what we would call today ultra-conservative. Anti-union, anti-labor, anti-people of color. You know, it was kind of an old-fashioned white supremacist uh, politics. And so you saw the rise of Papio Daniel, the, you know, kind of the crazy, most bigoted governor we ever had, uh, there through the 40s. By the early 1950s, Texas oil's influence on national politics was well established. If you were running for national office, especially as a president, it became a rite of passage to come down and meet with Texas oil millionaires. And this was a thing. You know, Nixon uh, came down. Uh, Nixon met with, with everybody here over and over and over. By and large, you know, Texas oilmen were pushing uh, what we would call today a right-wing agenda. Uh, and... What changed everything is that um, they hitched their wagon to Joseph McCarthy uh, in the early 1950s. McCarthy, of course, was a U.S. senator from Wisconsin who famously launched a national inquisition to, as he claimed, expose communist sympathizers. It became known as the Second Red Scare. Plenty of Texas oilmen strongly supported his cause, but after the backlash to McCarthyism, they were more chastened in their political pursuits. This was very popular and very powerful uh, for four or five years in the early 50s where, you know, a lot of people were losing their jobs because they were too liberal. But there was finally in 1953 an immediate and powerful backlash uh, powered by uh, the media, but also by Eisenhower, who was a, more of a moderate president who didn't much care for this crazy right-wing stuff. The fact that uh, Texas woman had so vividly sponsored uh, uh, McCarthy, there was huge blowback uh, that caused a lot of them really, in fact, almost all of them to kind of uh, tamp down their political involvement there for a period of years. And you really didn't see Texans become visible on the national stage again uh, until the 60s with LBJ, with the rise of George Bush especially. In 1948, George H.W. Bush was a young graduate from Yale and a war hero. He traveled from New England down to West Texas to make his fortune as an old man to Odessa, then Midland. Midland? Stop. Midland, Odessa. These were not places on the earth. 
that the rest of the country had ever heard of, much less been to. And suddenly, you know, in the late 40s, early 50s, there are so many Ivy League kids moving down there that they open Harvard Club and a Yale Club and a Princeton Club so that these gentlemen will have an appropriate place to drink, I suppose. The Texas oil business was reaching maturity, but it wasn't just the character of the oil man that was changing. The late 50s saw a tectonic shift across the entire industry. Oil was going global. Uh, The problem was uh, people started finding uh, oil in even more obscure places in the the Middle East, places called Kuwait and Qatar that no one had ever heard of. And this was a lot cheaper, a lot closer to Europe. You know, by, by 1960, by the early 60s, you didn't want to be a Texas woman. It was a lousy business. The rise of OPEC meant the golden age of the Texas wildcatter was over. George Bush looked for a way out of the Permian Basin. In 1958, he moved to Houston to run an offshore drilling company called Zapata. There, Bush got into politics and began to rise through the Republican ranks. Meanwhile, the 60s grew worse and worse for those in the American oil business. Domestic production declined while imports of Middle Eastern oil skyrocketed. For the first time, America grew dependent on foreign oil to meet its energy needs. In 1973, during the Yom Kippur War between a coalition of Arab states and Israel, OPEC issued an oil embargo on America and other Israeli allies. Over the next few months, the price of oil jumped nearly 400%. America was in a full-fledged oil crisis. It's the lowest point until it becomes the highest point. President Nixon began to tout a phrase that has been repeated by every U.S. president since, energy independence. The federal government pushed American oil companies to invest in domestic projects and scaled back regulations to make it as cheap as possible to drill for oil. By the mid-1970s, the Permian Basin was booming more than ever before. So we've got $20 a barrel oil. Thank you, OPEC. Now it's going to come up to 25, 30. So everybody and his dog is out there and getting into the oil industry. And um, your local dentist gets into oil. Your local auto dealer gets into oil. Everybody is out there um, looking for oil and gas, now profitable. In 1980, Ronald Reagan won a landslide victory. And on the ticket, a Texas oil man, George H.W. Bush. And back in West Texas, the oil business had never been better. Things peak in 1981, at which point economists out here still think that the boom has no end. We're going to not only see $40 a barrel oil, we're going to see $80 a barrel oil. It seemed unbelievable, but it seemed plausible. Can we see any end to this? Well, oil is a diminishing commodity. Take it out of the ground, and it's going to take you many millions of years to replace it. Surely it has no place to go but up. Four months ago, the price of West Texas crude oil was almost $31 a barrel. Today, it was just over $13. For every dollar the price drops, Texas stands to lose $100 million in state revenue. Next time on Boomtown, The Crash. Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly. Executive producer is Jason Hope. 
produced and engineered by Brian Standifer, who also wrote the score. Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit, and co-reported by Leif Riegstad. Our theme song is written and performed by Pake Rossi. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. A special thanks to the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas and the Permian Basin Petroleum Museum in Midland for the use of their archival footage. Also to the Dallas Historical Society and October Productions for the use of archival material. Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interest in the midstream oil and gas industry, among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. Visit texasmonthly.com slash boomtown for more on the story. And don't forget to tell your friends about Boomtown, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.